are listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Benjamin Boyce, and he is coming to us from Portland, Oregon. Is that correct? Olympia, Washington. Oh, okay. Sorry. Um, he's in Olympia, Washington. It's still there in that general region, that kind of soy milk, latte drinking, <laughs> men with ponytails, hipster region of the world. Oh, yeah. If you ignore get... all the cow wrestlers and, and uh, the truckers. Right. There's a little bit of that. But you can still get 20 different kinds of tofu, right? Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's around 34 now. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. Great. They're really pushing the limits. And I am coming to you from Buenos Aires, as usual. Benjamin is a podcaster himself and a YouTuber. And his podcast rejoices in the name The Voice of Reason, which is which I, I always find somewhat ridiculous whenever no, I see yeah. that. It's, it's supposed <laughs> to be ridiculous, yeah. I mean, uh, I take the piss out of myself just as much as anybody else. Well, I, at least I hope I do. Well, you know, some people's podcasts at least have an original name, <laughs> unlike mine. And uh, I want to talk to Benjamin about the events at Evergreen, the meltdown at Evergreen um, surrounding the whole controversy into which into which Brett, Brett Weinstein. Weinstein was was swept up. Mm-hmm. And Benjamin was a mature student at Evergreen at the time. And he experienced this palace coup from within the citadel. Hmm. And one of the first things I saw during the Evergreen scandal, after I saw the initial video of Brett standing in a hallway, facing a large group of angry students and telling them history might pivot in this hallway, which was an absolutely beautiful moment, standing very calmly talking to these irate students. And I think the second thing I saw was a video of Benjamin kind of hunched over an iPhone or computer, I don't know, (laughs) and looking and sounding extremely nervous. (laughs) It was like a nervous nervous little mouse was speaking into the camera. And he said, I'm recording this from within Evergreen. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I have some things to say about the situation. I think Jerry Coyne was the one who... um, shared that video. Mm. So, Of why and, uh, evolution is true. That's his blog, right? Yes, that, that's correct. And um, well, I've always wanted to talk to you about the Evergreen saga in more detail. Heather Hying was a previous guest on this podcast a few weeks ago. Um, Helen Pluckrose and I interviewed he- Heather. Wonderful. But we didn't talk about Evergreen at all because I was more interested in Heather's um, work as a biologist mm-hmm. But today we're going to talk about Evergreen, what happened, why it happened, what the implications are, whether this could spread or happen again. I've noticed some similar instances have happened at other colleges. And 
what we sane people can do about it, at, apart from just being <laughs> being half horrified and half amused. Mm. So welcome, Benjamin. That was a long introduction. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Also, your podcast was the first podcast, my first ever, I think, experience of being on a podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was about a year ago. Yes. A little more, I think, about a year and a half, probably. Oh, geez. <laughs> Time flies when you're making videos, I guess. <laughs> so could you tell me first a little bit about why you decided to go to um, Evergreen in the first place and why you went back to university or went to university hmm. at a ripe, the ripe old age of 35? 36. But I, yeah, I was feeling the oncoming of a Dante moment where my, the middle of the road of my life was being reached and I needed to uh, step through some sort of a gate. And uh, college just seemed like the right thing to do. I had been working in, in an educational environment for about 15 years by then. And that educational environment was a preschool or several preschools and uh, I would work with kids in the afternoon and in the morning I'd spend in cafes composing fictions of varied sorts and uh, I just couldn't get that fiction thing to do what I wanted it to do and I was kind of getting burnt out with uh, focusing on uh, four-year-olds and I guess one, two and three-year-olds as well and I just needed to, you know, immerse myself in a more or less adult environment and focus on uh, gaining, uh, well, really focus on my skills and then gaining some sort of, I, I guess, accreditation of my skills. So it just so happened that I was in Olympia and it just so happened that Evergreen's in Olympia and it just so happened that Evergreen is very, very affordable if you are an in-state student. And I, what appealed to me about Evergreen was the the framework of the education. Evergreen's kind of a non-traditional school itself. Every, well, not every class, but every class is technically called a program, and it'll be anywhere between 12 and 16 credits. And you'd have three teachers, and it might last one quarter or even the whole year, and you'd take a theme and you'd break it down from a variety of different disciplines. So I'll just give an example, probably the, the, the paragon of my Evergreen experience beyond the controversy was a course that I took, which was a year-long course called Dark Romantics, and it studied French literature, philosophy, art, and history, and probably, and, and language too, all in one class. So the framework was, you know, France between the, the, I almost said the cultural revolution, but it was just the French revolution up until I guess the fin de siècle, 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 uh, the end of the year, the turn of the year of the uh, 19th and the, the 20th century. Um, fin de siècle. Fin de siècle. And uh, yeah, you can tell that I kind of lost a lot of the French, but the last quarter of that, we actually went to the, the country called France and so it was a very immersive educational uh, kind of experience. And, and also, one other thing about Evergreen, after you kind of get used to these really long, immersive courses, you can start to design your own curriculum and get one-on-one -on -one participation with a faculty sponsor and really dive into a project. So in, in a way, the promise of an evergreen education, if done correctly, is that you can get a master's level 
degree uh, and not officially master's level, but master's depth degree um, at the cost of in-state tuition. And I, I feel like that's what I actually accomplished while I, while I was there. That's marvelous. I love th- I love the sound of that. Yeah, it's it's very very promising. But uh, I guess we can start with the story uh, if you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. So about halfway through my time there, so in 2015, in the spring, uh, the fall of 2015, so the beginning of the 2015-2016 school year, the college got a new president. George S. Bridges. And George Bridges, uh, the first thing that he said to the campus uh, was that the civil rights movement had done a lot of really good work, but America is still embroiled in, in racial issues. And so we're here to talk about those issues. And he empowered a bunch of faculty who were really on fire about solving the racial issues of America. And teaching students how to do that, too. And the way in which they implemented this, uh, this uh, I guess, this revolution of sorts in a positive sense was through the rubric of oppression and privilege. And I was, you know, I, I saw that happening, um, like, right in front of my eyes. I, I, one thing that's probably, like, the, the key moment of my evergreen uh, experience, besides all the work that I did on my degree, was watching my first teacher stand up in a crowded lecture hall and state uh, this, this very religious statement about how evergreen is just as implicated in white privilege and, and the oppression of folks of color as any other institution in history. And if we don't reckon how we teach white art and white history and white science, then our students will never, our white students will never understand their own racism and their own privilege, and our students of color will continue to be oppressed. And I watched that happening, and it was, the the room was full, and she said it all like a confession. And I was actually, I was in that room because I was manning one of the cameras, and actually you can't use the word man as a verb at Evergreen anymore because it's implicitly sexist. But I was on camera and I was watching this and I'm like, something is wrong here. Something is really off about the way that she's framing things. And furthermore, I had just been at a, uh, like some sort of orientation for my job where the, you know, the diversity officer stood up in front of the room and gave us a lecture about privilege. And she made this and I'm kind of used to this stuff now, but this is the first time that I really interacted with this way of thinking. The diversity officer, Rashida Love, made this chart uh, on the whiteboard in the front of the room. And the chart had that like is a, the That is the large African-American lady who has a tiny little dog? No, that's Naima Lowe. Oh, sorry. Rashida Love was the director of First People's Multicultural Advising Services. Naima Lowe was the teacher of media works. So Naima Lowe was a media studies professor. And we'll get to Naima Lowe. It's important to bring her up at some point. But what Rashida did in this, like this, I can't remember the name of the seminar, but it was for my job. So it was about communication or it was about being a good, you know, civil servant or being proper in your job. But what she did was she put this chart up. She drew this chart on the whiteboard and it said race, class, um, you know, religious uh, affiliation. And she made all these different categories. And then she's like, 
she asked the classroom, who is the most privileged in all of these these categories, right? Sexuality and gender. And, you know, it was the white, cis, heterosexual, Protestant male uh, who's well off. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking around and I'm like, are we really going down this route? Are we really going to break people up into their categories? Mm-hmm. It didn't really disturb me. It just, some something was going off in my head about this is, uh, this is against everything that I've been taught. This is against... The, the core principle in dealing with people where I see the individuality first and foremost, when I'm, when I'm interacting with a person on an individual level, I do not break them up into their statistical sociological categories because that will not give me any information with which to actually build a relationship with that person. Now I'm not saying that I ignore everything, but that individual, but everything else comes second to who that person is. And what that person is does not ever add up to who that person is. And watching the people break down each other based on category and then assigning the white male all this power and all this privilege and then also watching more and more jokes and slanders against the white male occur, I had to say something. And so I wrote I wrote a little blog post on the uh, forums. The Evergreen has this you know, faculty and student forum. It's called the Commons. And I just wrote this, this post trying to say that if we try to judge everybody, not by the content of their character, but the constellation of their characteristics, we will only ever be able to interact with each other on a tribal level. And that will increase and not decrease the difference between one person and another person. And I wrote that blog post and there was some there was some discussion that happened that was pretty positive. Um, one professor kind of came in and, and said that, of course, a white male would say that and directed me to like a feminist wiki to prove all her points, uh, which I thought was rather ideological. But um, but whatever, like I was kind of used to that at that point. But like two or three weeks after that happened, Nicholas Christakis uh, was surrounded on the quad at Yale. And do you, do you know this video that I'm talking about? Um, yes. And um, so Nicholas was uh, um, last week's guest on this podcast, in mm. fact. Um, well, there you go. So again, you probably spoke about that. Uh, no, actually, we didn't okay. speak about that. Um, so in both the case of Nicholas and Heather, they have so much other interesting work that exactly. I didn't want to get sidelined yeah. onto this topic. I wanted to talk to this topic about an expert like you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, there are videos of that. And I'd also recommend people what listen to Sam Harris's interview with Nicholas Christakis, which is called Facing the Crowd. And I'll link to mm-hmm. that in the show notes. Yeah. And that interview is all about what happened on the quad. Um, so that was after Erica Christakis wrote an, an email. So the students had... I think it was the administration had sent out an email to all the Yale students telling them to... Well, begging them to be sensitive about their Halloween costumes. Yes, exactly. Telling them to choose their Halloween costumes with care because certain costumes could be offensive. And Erica, who I believe is an an early childhood development and education specialist. So So it's it's your line of work, in fact, uh, your professional line of work. She wrote an email saying... Well, students are are adults and should be able to determine for themselves whether a costume is appropriate or not. Yeah. And 
uh, some students took this very badly and they gathered out in the quad and they were shouting that Erica needed to be fired and um, they formed this quite intimidating crowd again, this crowd of... And Nicholas of was w- so amazing. Bullies. If you watch that video, Nicholas just holds his composure the whole time. And yeah. he really does everything to really make a connection with the students and to make sense with them. Well, he stood and, there for a to long no time talking to them. I think it was almost an hour. Yeah. And, well, the same is true of, of Brett. In both cases, I think that I would have been really, I mean, I have been physically attacked by crowds. So I have PTSD mm. and I would not have been able to cope with this situation. Mm-hmm. I would have gone completely to pieces because the situation is a, a single person against a mob. That is the basis, basic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What it basically boils down to. And in that situation, I feel that we should always defend the single person. It almost doesn't matter who they are and what they have done. Mm-hmm. It almost doesn't matter. We can't just allow there to be, we, we can't well, attack single people on their own with mobs. Well, the thing is, is that what's the difference between mob justice and social justice? What I saw happened to Christakis, and I think it was right about that time that the same thing happened to Peterson, Jordan Peterson, who was then just a small uh, professor. Well, I mean, he's always been tall, but a smallly known professor up in University of Toronto who would just post his lectures to the internet. And he took umbrage with a bill that could have some implications about compelled speech. And he took a stand on that, and the students surrounded him and tried to shut him down. And I I saw in what happened to Christakis and what happened to Peterson, I saw I saw an emotional tenor within that crowd that was being replicated by the professoriate of Evergreen. And while the professoriate of Evergreen had more composure and were not yet ganging up on people, I would find out later that they actually were already ganging up on people through the listserv. It, there should be a distinction between how the students acted and how the professors acted. The professors had more more language, and a little bit more control over their behavior. But but there was a convergence there between mob justice and what was being called social justice. And I thought that it came down to breaking people down into their characteristics. or And then that somehow, through a magic trick, turns over into, if you don't agree with our view of the world, and if you don't agree that we need to protect certain classes of people, then you are actually assaulting those classes of people because those classes of people need protection. There are so many things going on here. I mean, one is that I understood social justice um, with a small s and a small j, which Mm -hmm. I differentiate when I'm writing at least between social justice with large s and a large j, which is what we're talking about Mm -hmm. here, particular ideology. But I would think of social justice as being being treated justly by society and within society, having a just society. Whereas mm-hmm. here it's has it has seemed to slide into a meaning which is justice will be meted out to you by society. Uh, mm-hmm. But not by society's institutions, but by kind of roving bands of vigilantes. Yeah, which um, turns into antisocial justice. Right. Right. But or I th- mob justice. It's I mean, what was interesting at Yale was that what the students objected to or somehow couldn't parse was the idea of their own independence. And that is where I feel that it differs from 
what the kinds of protests that we had when I was at university. I was not a mature student, so it was many years ago. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think, I mean, I had I already had my PhD and was teaching before almost all of the evergreen students, except for you, had been born. Mm -hmm. But I, a lot of people felt very passionately about issues, and it could become very polarized, and people could be quite extreme in their views. But yeah. it wasn't. We didn't want more policing. We weren't ever campaigning for, um, we didn't have any administ administrators who were there to sort of police mm -hmm. students and make sure we behaved correctly. Um, yeah. We had pastoral staff who were supposed to be there if students were depressed or had mental health or other problems, but whom we called advisors. But we didn't have the, these kind of departments, like a department of diversity or of this or of that, with these yeah. very highly paid, better paid than faculty, administrative staff who are there basically to police students' behavior. And what they mm -hmm. were asking at Yale was they want more of that kind of policing. Um, and that's really yeah. extraordinary to me. Um, that's a sort of a demand for infantilization. Well, there's a nest of contradictions there because they, they are adamant against police, but they are adamant that they want more policing. Right, so what, yes. When it, ends up, when it comes down to it, they, they want people who believe what they believe and who are a certain you know, collection of characteristics to be meeting out what they believe and policing other people. It's not really fleshed out because there's this anti-police, pro-policing kind of uh, attitude that, that comes to a head in the Evergreen Spring and a uh, year and a half after I saw things start to head that way. Right. So please carry on telling me the story. Well, we can fast forward. So in 2015, in the fall of 2015, President Bridges comes on board. He makes a statement that basically he's going to empower this uh, the college to basically go after racial justice. And so he wants to kind of he doesn't say this explicitly, but he wants to direct the college towards racial justice. He empowers uh, a bunch of people who want that, too. Uh, and they set up a committee and then start to host a series of lectures that go on over the course of the 2016 or 2015-2016 school year. At the end of 2016, or at the end of the 2015-2016 school year, which is in spring, the president gives a charge for the creation of an equity and diversity committee that is supposed to formulate an action plan to define the college's goals and the ways that they're going to meet those goals to achieve racial justice or, or what they call equity. And mm. at the same moment, about the same moment that President Bridges forms that group, uh, the faculty themselves take a vote to require that every year, as a part of the self-evaluation for faculty, one of the items that every individual faculty will write about is their growth with regards to equity and racial justice. Their personal and growth. Their personal growth. Wow. And there's a, there's a meeting so where this sinister. vote is going to... Well, that's the thing. So there's this meeting where they're going to vote on this and there's some discussion. I have audio 
of this meeting, which I haven't released yet because I need to go through and do all those uh, those typey words so people can understand what, what's being said because the audio is kind of crummy. But Brett Weinstein stands up at the meeting and he gives about a five-minute speech about how he thinks this is a bad idea. And it comes down to him saying, I think this is a bad idea. And he, he qualifies his statement to say, I'm not racist. I want us to solve racism in society. But if every one of us is going to write about this individually, this could lead to some people getting in trouble if they don't do enough work or if they don't come down on the right side or or agree that something is racist or not. So we're injecting an ideological framework and a specific framework into our self-evaluations. And this can lead to some bad results. He he stands up and he says that, and then there's some back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and they do a vote, and everybody votes for it except for Brett and one other person. And I think there's probably one or two abstentions from that vote. So that happened on May 23rd, 2016, a year to the day later. On May 23rd, 2017, Brett is then confronted by the student protesters. But what happens between those two dates between May 23rd, 2016 and May 23rd, 2017, is that President Trump is made President Trump. Mm. Which is clearly Brett's fault for not voting for that kind of self-confession um, obligation for faculty. Uh, maybe maybe there's some causation there. Maybe, maybe it's not mm-hmm. just correlation. Maybe. Uh, yeah, the I'm world may blame- never know. I'm going to blame Brett for this from now on. (laughs) Well, what happens when President Trump gets elected is that all that radicalism that has been seeded into the students by the faculty, and I've been watching this lecture after lecture and seminar after seminar, and it's not that these ideas are bad in and of themselves. We can argue if they're good or bad, but the fact is, is that at no point were these ideas argued. They were only ever lectured about. Robin D'Angelo came and she spoke about white fragility. And they had all these different speakers come and speak about these racial issues and these social justice issues, but never in a panel where they were discussed. So the students never saw these ideas dismantled and then remantled or, or kind of put to a test at all. There was only ever one side of this issue promulgated by the school which I think leads to a ideological radicalism and a weakness in being able to discuss these issues, because, of course, they're all already correct, politically so. Mm. So President Trump gets elected on November whatever, I think, 7th or something like that. And a week later, that equity committee presents their plan for the college. And again, there's this meeting and it's full of people and I'm on camera And I didn't know what was going on, you know, like everybody was kind of like shaken from Trump and they're kind of scared and people were kind of weepy about Trump getting elected because Trump obviously was always fascist. And the next day, any day now, the Stasi's going to come through and just like bowl over all of this justice that we've been working for, right? They had this idea in their mind that this was the worst thing that could possibly happen. Now, I'm not saying whether or not that's true, but they were very emotional about that. And they present their plan. And they frame it as this is how it's going to happen. And there is to be no questioning that if you are going to question, you're, that is basically the same as being an obstructionist. 
This, this is how we're going to go forward. And the language of this, this is now called the canoe meeting. Uh, because at the end of this meeting, everybody stands up and gives a confession into the microphone about all the work that they need to do for racial justice. And then they all stand in line and march out the door. But at no point was the actual plan spoken about. They never talked about the contents of this equity plan. They only talked about how we should think about it and how we should feel about it. It was never brought up into a, you know, what I would think of as an academic rigorous way of presenting something. It wasn't like that. And furthermore, it came to light later on that that plan was written the night before. The data was really horribly handled. I have recordings of the actual, this, the head of statistics of Evergreen saying that they came in wanting to see, wanting to have the data do something for them to basically fulfill the destiny of racial justice. When it turns out that one of the, uh, one of the most underprivileged groups unfortunately, was white men, young white men, especially poor young white men, were struggling very much in, at Evergreen with regards to retention, right, according mm. to their own mm. rubrics. But they left all that out because, because they wanted a specific race to be shown to be underrepresented or underserved. And actually, Evergreen was doing amazing. Evergreen's actually been doing really good up until the protests to to provide services and to 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 provide degrees to these this target that they that they're wanting to do anyway mm. so the data's bad the plan was actually chunks of it were copy pasted from other equity proposals of other institutions so it's plagiarized it's heavily plagiarized and it and then it was never actually discussed and after that event, which is super religious, I'm on camera. I'm looking around, just mouthing WTF because it was just crazy. You can see the videos online about this. Yes, I'm going to be linking in the show notes to the series of videos that Mike Niner has published on Evergreen and uh, to your podcast also, Interview with Mike, um, where you mm -hmm. talk about that. Yes, yeah. I saw the canoe thing. So it's like you need to all agree to this document and get into a canoe, <laughs> into a kind of like yeah. imaginary canoe and it don't rock the boat it wasn't even fun they just had to like stand there in twos <laughs> i mean i'm a dancer i would have created at least some dance performance thing. there was a drummer there was a drummer yeah they could have had a proper a stage set you know and songs and but uh i will link to that but of course nobody um nobody was willing to do the hard work of actually putting together the documents it seems yeah, they threw it together. The, the data was really bad. Um, the, the presentation was borderline cultic. They actually, they, they marched out the door in this canoe formation. They went down to the Longhouse, which is the Native American building on campus, and they had students get in the middle, and they surrounded the students, and they sang all these songs about, I guess, justice and, and freedom from unfairness. Mm -hmm. um, so in a manner of speaking, they performed a ritual. Mm. At that moment. Did they at uh, least to, get a, a real canoe at any point? Uh, and, they, yeah, and there's fact, a carving studio now. So. And, and in fact, the canoe thing, couldn't we say that that is um, cultural appropriation? Uh, no, the, the the Native Americans have a strong presence, and they they uh, oh, officially okay. leased they endorsed that. The, they uh, leased the canoe, the imaginary canoe. Yeah, yeah, they leased the the idea of the canoe ceremony. Actually, there was some mention about that um, in the program. But they they performed a ritual to solidify the group around this one cause and around this one issue. And within that ritual, they explicitly said that any questioning of this will get you banned and will get you barred. And 
after that meeting, there was a series of email chains uh, or just emails on the all faculty and staff listserv, uh, this email uh, kind of thing, um, where Brett Weinstein, Mike Peros, and Peter Dorman all kind of argued against this plan or, or tried to, like, show, is this a good idea? And and do, you guys were not told to be in charge of hiring, but they placed themselves in charge of hiring going forth. Like, the, it was it was very explicitly, if you look at it, they even, in this document, there's this uh, this flow chart about, you know, like the like an organizational chart, you know, with who's in charge of what. And Naima Lowe was in charge of hiring going forward, right? They, they put themselves in charge of how the organization of Evergreen would proceed after this point. How, how convenient for them? It, no, it's it very convenient. Brett brought that up and, and Mike brought that up and uh, people argued against that. But, you know, it, it was kind of uh, their arguing was taken to be not just being disagreeable, but being racist. To, to not agree with them is to be racist. To be anti-anti-racist is to be racist. And I saw this myself. I was, I was, I tried to get a job in the writing center um, because, you know, I spent a lot of my life trying to write books. And by the time I got to Evergreen, I, I had written more books than any professor at Evergreen. Um, not to toot my own horn. That's just like the, the, the fact of the matter. And so I tried to get a job in the writing center to help people with writing because this is a skill that I have. And I was asked in my interview, whether or not what I thought about anti-oppression work. And I knew the right answer. I knew that there was a right answer here because I had already taken like the little class where, you know, if, if you correct somebody's grammar, that's cultural. That's, that's uh, what's the word? That's colonialization, right? It, academic writing, clear writing is, is the suppression of other cultures, right? And, and so I was asked, what do you think about anti-oppression? And, I, and I'm like, okay, I know I'm not going to get the job now, but I have to say, you asked, <laughs> if, if the, the one thing that anti-oppression needs in order to function is oppression. And if it doesn't have oppression that's obvious, it will try to find oppression because it cannot function without oppression. I am not a psychologist. I am not an activist. I just want to help people get their words out and articulate their thoughts in a way that they understand and that the reader can understand. And oppression, we can talk about oppression, we can write about oppression, but my job as a writing tutor is not to toot the oppression or anti-oppression horn. And uh, of course, I was not hired for mm. that. So to be anti, anti-racist means you're racist. To be anti, anti-oppression means you are an oppressor, that you're defending oppression. And this is one of the tricks that is played with this. If you don't agree with the means, that means you don't agree with the goal. So I can be, I can be against racism all I want, but the moment that I'm not agreeing with the anti-racists, I'm just as good, if not worse, than that racist bigot. In fact, I am worse because I'm saying that I'm not racist. I think this connects to something that Helen, well, probably uh, not Helen, but um, probably James Lindsay was talking about. Mm -hmm. And that is this strange, complete faith in words. And I think that comes from a, partly from a garbled understanding mm. of postmodernism. So mm. if I call it postmodernism, I will have a hundred Foucault scholars on my back instantly telling me that Foucault never endorsed this. Of course he didn't. This is a Baudelaireized version of postmodernism hmm. in which the only thing that matters are words. And therefore, if you use the right pronouns and you say the right words, mm -hmm. then you're on the side of good. It doesn't matter whether you actually mean those words or not. You just have to 
literally hmm. say the words like an incantation or write your sort of mm -hmm. confession of your growth or whatever, or declare yourself to be racist or whatever it might be, because the power is the power is in the in the creed, in the reciting of the creed itself. You know what? I think it it's not just postmodernism. I think it's also living in a advertising culture. And what 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 you see happening is a sloganizing of thought. Yes, absolutely. Where, where this 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 phrase equals this brand or ideology. And if you say this word, that means that you're part of this clan. So there's a lot of different things that are in the mix here. Tribalism, like like uh, what N Mike Nana said in our interview, is said that there's different software, but the, the hardware remains the same. And the human hardware is activated to act in a certain way. And, and the software can be different, but it'll still enact the same sorts of you know, bodily reactions, physical, emotional, physiological reactions. And furthermore, on the, on the, on the word front, what happens over and over and over and over again is that the, they'll just change the word because they'll use the word social justice and then they'll act badly. So then that social justice will be attached to this behavior, right? There will be an association between this formula and this behavior. So what they do is they change the name of what they're doing. Right now, what used to be called the... Uh, multicultural office was then called the Office of Equity and Diversity at Evergreen, and now it's called the Office of Inclusive Excellence. And if you ever heard of a more meaningless phrase than inclusive excellence, please say it because I, I haven't. No, it's, um, but that it's is actually, now like it's actually paradoxical. Um, I mean, you can't have well, yeah. The excellent is, is the rare. Right? <laughs> <laughs> excellence, by its definition, is exclusive. Um, well, maybe but not. That excludes, yes, so it's, it's wrong. Yes, it's exclusive. Yes, it's exceptional, right? The exceptional is not the rule. The, the, the exceptional is above normal or below normal. It's right? basically but how can everybody a, yeah. be exceptional? It's a low. It goes back Lake to that Wobegon. everybody getting a, an award thing. Yeah, it's a a Lake Wobegon. Oh, yeah. You know where all the women were, all all the um, all the women were handsome, all the men were tall, and all the children were above average. Yeah. Exactly. And, and what, the, what that ends up doing, I believe, what happened at Evergreen at least, is that when you begin to, you, you set up this arbitrary system of power based on characteristics. And what happens is that the people with the worst characteristics end up gaming the system. The people who don't care about virtue, in, in the sense of being polite, of, of being reasonable, of reasoning, of stating an opinion, of having forethought and, and long sight, the people who lack all that game the system in order to get immediate power. And that's what happened at Evergreen in the spring of 2017. The people who rose to power in those four or five days, that two-week period, were people who, on the outside, had the most oppressed characteristics and, on the inside, had the most oppressive character. Mm, mm. Could, could you tell me a little bit about Naima Lowe, who seemed to be one of the most... I can see how progressively she's like at the top of the hi yeah. their caste hierarchy because she is... Yeah. I don't know if she's African-American or what. I'm not very good at... Yes. I mean, one thing that makes me not good at social justice is I'm not good at recognizing race. Oh. Uh -huh. uh, I mean, literally... Oh. Um, so you're congenial, you're congenially colorblind. <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize that Mike Niner didn't consider himself a white guy. 
And then I was watching him in your podcast. So maybe he does look a little bit coffee colored. I don't know. Um, yeah, I no, just, yeah. He's, he's very olive. Right. I, I, but I don't really pay much attention to that. Anyway, I think she's hmm. a little darker skinned and she's also obese, which I'm sure has got to be one of the categories. She has uh, mental health issues. That's why she has a little dog, emotional support mm-hmm. dog. And yeah. and she's a woman. Well, I, I think okay. that's it. Yeah, go ahead. So what happened after the protest was that I started talking into my camera or my phone on my camera. And I got some response of that because people were wondering what was actually happening at Evergreen. They saw what happened, but they wanted to know, you know, there was this huge lacunae or gap in understanding of what was happening. And I was there and I saw that. I saw all these seminars. I saw all these lectures. I, I went to all these different programming rituals. Um, and... And so what I did in the aftermath of the Evergreen protest was to exhume all of that data and put it out there, which that data, Mike, has gone through and selected the juiciest bits and assembled into a very palpable, uh, lovely, you know, very condensed form. But when I came across Naima Lowe, I, th- the thing is, is that you cannot, in order to handle Naima Lowe, is that you do not bring up her characteristics. You ignore the characteristics. You abstract her from her body, from her psychology, from her you know, service dog, from even her tone of voice and behavior. And you go back and you look at her ideas. Th- that is the most important thing because mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. ideas, if those ideas are replica- re- replicated, then we have a problem. Nobody's going to ever replicate Naima Lowe's constellation of identities and right? the, and or there's, multiple marginalities. There's nothing wrong with her constella- the- constellation of identities. Yeah, um, and, and, and so to, to, to criticize those is to completely miss the point and to play into her hand and give her power. Right, Because she'll right. say, look at those people. They are oppressing me. Look at those people. They were rude about me. Sorry, so yes. am I not justified in being rude myself? I, I, I completely agree. And I didn't mean to do that when I was describing her. Um, you know, mm. what, I'm, what I was trying to describe is that the way that she fits into the top of that hierarchy, that sort of yeah. reverse yeah. hierarchy. Um, But, uh, you know, I can imagine a really completely wonderful person who looks exactly identical, you know, who is Naima Lowe's twin sister with the same dog, looks, voice, everything else, but just speaking sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's what I tried to present. I tried to present her arguments, divorced from her her tonality, in in the episode that I did on her. Right. It's called the, the the Red Queen of Evergreen. And and what I did was I just showed her Which I'll link to these freshman orientations. Yeah, I, I showed her at the freshman orientations talking about power, and she said everything is about power. And in this in this talk she gave, and she's really rational or at least reasonable about it. She says. If if we if if you go around saying that you don't see race, then what you're doing is ignoring all the structures of oppression that people subject themselves to. And then she goes on to say that I can be racist all I want. As a matter of fact, I know for a fact that I am racist, that I don't like white people. But because I don't have any power, because I don't have any power, my racism doesn't matter. Right. She said that basically more or less verbatim. Right. Wow. And so the, the, the and so <laughs> what happened though during the protest and what happened leading up to the protest was that she used her position of power as a media studies professor who indoctrinated students and that's one problem with the evergreen educational model you have young impressionable minds submitted for 
you know, a whole quarter or a whole year to certain ideologues who then program you to think this way. And that's what happened with a lot of the key protesters were groomed by Naima Lowe and by Felix Braffith, who's uh, another character altogether. But Naima Lowe seized power. She set things in motion, whether intentionally or not, and I don't have the documents to tie her, to tie the students' behavior directly to her, but it's very obvious that when the students show up and confront Brett Weinstein, they are parroting Naima Lowe's words. They have a document that Naima Lowe had, and, and you have them even saying that Brett is being racist against Naima. Right. So there, there's a very direct, I don't know if it's causative, but it's very correlative between Naima Lowe and the students. And then what happens on the second day of protest, which is May 24th, 2017, is that the students interrupt a faculty emeritus meeting where every year the faculty celebrate the emeritus or the people who are moving on to uh, grazier pastures, right? Mm-hmm. And they eat cake. And it just happened to be on the Wednesday, the 24th. And the students stormed into this, you know, this meeting, the celebration, and they accuse the faculty of teaching the students to protest and change the world and then sitting there eating cake while the world is trying to be changed. And Naima Lowe gets up there and she's, she gives this uh, statement. I, I don't know if I can recall it all right now, but she gives this statement saying that, you know, I don't come to this place because you all are racist. We've been sitting on our asses for 40 years, not doing anything. And this is the moment. This is the moment. We need to go right now. You all need, if you believe in this stuff, you all need to act right now. And what happens was the students kind of shove the faculty out the door and they all go to the administration building. And actually I've documented documents of the students roaming around campus on this day and and asking individual older white people if they are faculty or not. And if they are faculty, they need to go into the library building. They cannot leave. Or they can leave and they won't be hurt, but they should go of their own volition, but, you know, surround faculty and stuff. The story that I want to tell is that the, the most famous footage from the Evergreen protest, besides George Bridges uh, allowing himself to be told when or when and where he can pee, <laughs> is Naima Lowe, surrounded by students, screaming irately at her colleagues, at her fellow professors, mm. about how racist they are and how, uh, you know, and going after them and getting the students riled up and, and shouting, go inside or go home. And the students are following her every whim. So in that moment, in that moment, she has infinite power. And yet I still believe that she thinks that she's excused from being racist when she's being absolutely racist, having utter power, but that that formulation, she said, that racism is only power and prejudice, right? If she has infinite prejudice and infinite power, then is she not racist? And how does, how do we resolve that? So the logic itself breaks down. We can, we can extract everything from that, except for that formulation being put to the test. It's, um, their their conception of what it means to have power is completely static. And this is something that I've Hmm. remarked upon uh, before it is inborn, it's a caste system, and it's a caste system with zero mm-hmm. mobility, and mm-hmm. so it's worse than the actual caste in in that sense. Their putative caste system that they imagine in their no, mind. No, it's it's got it's got the it's got the mobility of a demolitioned building. Right, but it's also you know there's there's no conception that power is situational. So, for example, you know a 
Pakistani guy who's a first-generation Muslim immigrant is a powerless person. And it doesn't matter if he comes home and beats up and terrorizes his wife and daughters. He is still powerless mm-hmm. because that is the social justice thing. And in the same mm-hmm. way, Naima Lowe is always powerless because of her weight, her dog, her mental health, her skin color. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. whether, you know, she is made the empress of the universe tomorrow. Yeah. There's no there's no conception that power is not something that is just an inbuilt characteristic like the color of your eyes, but it's also about the situation that mm. you are in and mm. the possibilities that you have and your relationship with well, other people. Yeah. yeah. It's it's very it's utopic and dystopic at the same time. It it wants something that's impossible for it to gain, right? And so when it exercises its power, the exercise of power is utterly frustrated and other utterly articulate only for that moment. It's never dispensed. It's never like we want to erect a better system of justice. We just we need to tear down this system of injustice. Right. And then some somehow magically in the ashes, the the, the new world will form. Benjamin, so you were a student there. Did you talk to your fellow students about what was going on? And did you find any anyone who was more sympathetic to your view? Well, yeah. I mean, again, I was a mature student, so I kind of just showed up and I did my work and I went home and and I just kind of shrugged and and at the at the behavior. Or I would talk to older mature students or staff and kind of we just kind of like you know like talk about how the uh, how the students were behaving and how idiotic that was. But I was part of a group of uh, I think it was called the Evergreen Seventeen, who signed a letter that <laughs> called out the faculty uh, for having a witch hunt against Brett Weinstein because Brett Weinstein ended up going on Tucker Carlson the evening of the twenty fifth, I believe, perhaps the twenty sixth. Yes, I'll, and I'll, he I'll link to that. Stated his case. I'll, I'll link to that. Yeah, yeah. he stated his case, and that uh, was seen as the faculty as an utter betrayal, and that would bring upon all of the white supremacists in the world because he went on Tucker Carlson, as though the footage, the hours and hours of footage that the students filmed themselves had nothing to do to bring the intention of Fox News there in the first place. And so what the faculty did, like 90 faculty and staff signed this letter that excused wholeheartedly everything that the students did. And pinned all the blame on the blowback of the blowback onto Brett Weinstein. And they, they asked that the students be ex- excused and the code of conduct be rewritten to excuse them, and that the faculty code of conduct be used to prosecute Brett or persecute him for stating his opinion openly, where there's nowhere in this, uh, the the faculty handbook says that you can't state your opinion publicly. So they want to rewrite both handbooks to excuse one person, a set of people, and to blame another people and to empower the prosecution of another person. And and me and other students uh, who are watching this, and most of the people did not, most of the students did not participate in this. 10 to 20 percent of the students showed up and, and heckled. And, and, you know, a very small fraction of them were the irate ones that we see in the videos. Most people just want to show up, get their degree, and leave. And the the students who participated in that were treated in such a way after the protests that they were the ones who were lifted up they were the ones who became the heroes of the college they were the ones that george bridges put in charge of a committee to rewrite the student code of conduct so the the leaders of the protest were given the power to rewrite 
the protest, the, the, the way that the, the students would be treated going forward. And, and the reason for that was called restorative justice. Uh, the reason for that, the stated reason that I heard about putting the student protesters in charge of, re, of rewriting the student code of conduct was to teach them how they were wrong, to see how the law is written, because they would have to abide by the law. But the signal that that sent out to the student protesters and the rest of the student body and the rest of the universe, I, I think, at large, is that if you misbehave and you're of the right sort of collective characteristics, you will be praised no matter what. You know, I, the, one of the lead protesters who, who told George when he could pee, what he could not pee, was actually put in charge of a, an orientation on race the next year for incoming freshmen. That's, that's how he was treated. Mm. Um, tell me about the involvement of Naima Lowe. Let's go back to there. So I think you got to the protest itself. You were talking about how everybody had to go into the library, that Naima and other people were rounding up people on campus. And if they looked older, like older white people, they had to go to the library for this meeting. Very heavily uh, told or strongly uh, urged to attend this protest in the library, which that particular part of the protest was a barricade of the library building where they got a bunch of furniture. They popped it up against the doors because they were afraid that the police would show up. Little did they know that the chief of police, the chief of campus police, Stacy Brown, had already ascertained what they were going to do and sent a memo to the president's office warning him about what was going to occur and suggesting, heavily suggesting, that he close campus for the day. And if George Bridges would have, not obeyed, but followed the suggestion of his chief of police, then a lot of what happened, well, probably about half of all the crazy, crazy stuff that happened would have not happened. And that crazy stuff being the rounding up of professors, being the blockading of the library building. The library building also has the administration building in it with all the different, you know, services for students. Uh, Could I just, sorry, um, you mean they went inside the library and then they blockaded it from inside? Or you mean they blockaded it so no one could get in? They blockaded it from the inside. Okay, so they rounded everyone up. They went into the library and they blockaded it from inside. Were you there? Yeah, I was there. I was finishing up my project. I was hoping you would say that. I mean, I'm sorry that you had to go through this <laughs> this event, but... It was very laughable while it was happening. Okay, so tell me about the library protest. Tell me what happened from your perspective. There's reports, like I was saying, there was reports of uh, janitors being cornered in bathrooms. There's reports of... Uh, different offices going into lockdown and student protesters pounding on the doors and saying, let us in, let us in. And there's money in those places so that they're on lockdown. And then when they open up the windows, there's tape to the tape to the windows. You can't hide from us. The, the, uh, the protesters acted like hooligans. From my perspective, I just heard a bunch of chanting and I saw a bunch of protesters go into the actual library part of the library building and start to take furniture and the library staff stopped them. And, you know, the, the protesters were walking around with these signs such as uh, white silence is violence, which is the first time I, I saw that particular sign, and I thought it was pretty laughable. 
And there's a story about that later on after the protest itself. Um, but from my perspective, I just wanted to get my work done. And, and so I worked until my time to work was done. Then I left the library building. I was not confronted until after those days of protest in the class that I attended following the protest. There was a struggle session in that. But for the May 24th 2017 day of protest, which is what we're talking about. That's the day where you see students uh, on camera saying that we need to round up the teachers. Uh, we need to keep them in this room in the president's office. Watch this door. Watch that door. Make sure that nobody leaves. This is the day where President George says, I need to pee. And one of the lead protesters says, you need to hold it. And then when George eventually does go to pee, there's video of students escorting him to the restroom. This day of process, it, it was total madness. And so what they were doing was rounding up professors and teachers. And while they were doing that, they were just in this hallway. They're, they're in this jam-packed hallway, just chant, chanting these slogans over and over and over again. Hey, hey, ho, ho, these racist faculty have got to go. And, uh, you know, something, something, fuck the police. And, and just kind of the, that just madness going on. I have released the police... Uh, phone records for this day, which are pretty enlightening, um, kind of showing how the police were interacting and trying to deal with this. But they were essentially told to stand down. The police had no ability to do anything. But if anything violent did actually happen, who would have been held responsible? It would have been Stacey Brown as well as George Bridges. But George Bridges basically shackled Stacey Brown from being able to do anything that day. Did they give any evidence for the racism, the supposed racism of the faculty? Um, I mean, beyond, I mean, beyond just saying everybody is racist, were there any specific examples that anybody gave um, that had led, did they give any kind of reasons for how they had been led to this conclusion? The refrain, when you get down to details in the video of the protest, the refrain is that Evergreen has been ignoring these issues for years, that students have been complaining about these issues for years, and faculty are even saying that. They've been complaining, we've been working on this for years, but they know they don't specify exactly what happened. It's just like this systemic institutional oppression going on. And it's really ironic because this is the institution that's teaching these students that all institutions are inherently oppressive and racist. And so the students turn that lesson back upon the institution that's nominally trying to teach them to go and change some, some other part of the world. But yeah, the only evidence that they bring up specifically is Brett Weinstein's emails, which, you know, I, from a first person perspective during the protests, I was, I went from the library and then I went to my job, which was still in the uh, library building, which was where the media department was. And I had a classmate come up to me with a stack of Brett Weinstein's emails. And she said, and maybe it was a they, they said, I'm going through his emails and I know he's racist, but I can't find it in these emails. So I'm trying to decode where the racism is because it, it, it's impossible that he's not racist. And I'm like, can you look at yourself right now? <laughs> um, did you feel afraid at any point? Um, or did you think that things might turn ugly and you might be a target because you're white? Well, I was targeted due to the pallid pallor of my skin 
like I said, like the class that I had on the Saturday following the week of protests, my professor, who is actually unfortunately one of the few professors that actually engaged with my project, like really deeply engaged with my project. So he really, he really serviced me on an intellectual level or an educational level, but he had a very, I guess, technically he identifies as a they, and the whole course was about poetry and protest. And I didn't know that was what it was going to be. I thought it was just another, you know, final, like kind of just a poetic thing, learn how to teach poetry um, to students and by observing the professor teaching poetry. But there was a heavy social justice, uh, kind of trans rights, um, uh, kind of very radical bent to the whole thing. And it, I watched the students around me become more and more radicalized as things went on and, and go from experimenting with different forms of meaning making to simply expressing their own trauma. Like the whole thing became a trauma session. And on the Saturday following the protests, my professor, for whatever reason, he wanted us to work this stuff out. And so he empowered three dark-toned individuals, technically black people. Um, What did he want you to work out? This is always my problem with social justice is that there's no there there. I can never get to any actual, with social justice with a capital S, capital J, the ideology. I'm not talking about having a fair society when I say social justice. I'm talking always specifically about the ideology. It's always all this abstract language. And it reminds me very, very much of administration and administrative language and the kind of language people used when I was doing my um, PGC in higher education and uh, my teaching qualification and in business too. So I've also taught Um, I've also taught business English and I've taught some business business. And that is also full of abstract language, which it can sometimes be really hard to get people to give you even one concrete example um, of what they mean. I often have the feeling that there is no concrete idea behind it. It's just a kind of play with words. Do Do you have that sense? Or do you think there was something concrete behind this beyond they wanted to have cake and things like that was there something you know was there a concrete grievance that was behind this when they said these issues we need to deal with these issues do you think that people had a a sense of what particular issues those were well i can tell you what happened and then we can i'm sorry to make you sigh so much i mean we can return to this well i just yeah. the there's the interpretation and then there's the story and if i in, start interpreting interpreting in the middle of the story then i don't know what part of the story i told so if we if we focus on the story then we can break down the story right? okay i'll sh- i'll shut up and stop interrupting you and just let you tell the story cuz i think it will answer your question because without me needing to interpret it we can just i can just tell you what happened and i did record this meeting because the teacher said that uh, i can't remember exactly what he said but it's time for us to work out these issues and so we empowered the three black individuals to kind of run this session and what they did was uh, well first of all the, the one of these students who, you know, started the whole quarter um, after she told us all her pronouns, that she was there to, uh, what was it called? Like, uh, call people out on their bullshit. Like, that was her whole thing. She was the TA, and her job there was to call people out on their bullshit. And so when the, you know, the talking stick or the megaphone was handed over to her, then 
she looked directly at me and she said, during the protest on Wednesday, I walked past you while you were leaving the library building and you didn't even make eye contact with me. And I, I never felt so disempowered in that moment when you were walking away from everything that we've been working on. And I just looked at her like, okay, I'm, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, but I didn't say anything because I knew to engage would only give them something to yell at. And that's what happened in this struggle session in my class. They demanded that the white students had been, vi- or they, they asserted that the white students were enacting violence on people of color because they were listening and because they were quiet. And then the white students would say, well, what do you want us to say? And then they would say, shut the fuck up. And then and then want us to say something else and then say, shut the fuck up again until they ran out of steam. And there's this uh, there's a recording that was released, I think, earlier this month. And I can't remember the exact school, but there was a couple of black students that walked into a uh, some sort of student council meeting and uh, demanded that they had been uh, or asserted that they had to suck cock to get any funding for the black student activities and they just made this huge scene and all the other people on the council just listened and then once the protesters ran out of steam they needed more material to feed off of and the same thing that happened in my class was the same thing that happened on the the first day of protests where you have Brett Weinstein and President Bridges and Stacey Brown surrounded by protesters in this room on the fourth floor of the library building and the the protesters are just uh, yelling at them and attacking them and then demanding that they say something and then not listening to that, but attacking it over and over and over again. So I don't know. This is the question. I don't know if this is like a feature or a bug of that way of thinking. I don't know if inherent in the way that they were taught was the eventuality that they would act this way, but they ended up acting this way and then using all those social justice tools of like oppression and hierarchy and privilege that we were talking about earlier, they used all that simply to exert power. And that power, like we, I think we talked about yesterday, was just about the, the momentary expression of angst, anxiety, the, the momentary, uh, the flooding of the, the nervous system with that adrenalized power. And that went on for like an hour in, in my class. And, and I did record that and I released, I, I edited it down and I released, uh, I released about 20 minutes of that or 15 minutes of that audio just so people can know what was going on outside of just those chants. Because a lot of the footage is them just yelling, but this was like more uh, deep, uh, kind of like a more nuanced take on this, I guess, madness, perhaps I could say. One one student tried to express some concrete racism that she experienced where somebody, she was walking down the street and somebody yelled something at her and that she felt very unsafe. But then the other two students, one of which was very famous, he's in a wheelchair, he's very recognizable, he was in that class too, he just got delight out of making the white girls cry. And there was one white girl that, that breaks down crying and they're laughing at her crying because she's centering her emotions because they're yelling at her and then saying that she's violent and then shut the fuck up. It was very sadistic and it didn't go anywhere. And I walked out of that class thinking to myself, what the heck was that? But the next day, thinking about it, I'm like, that was utterly wrong. This whole thing was utterly wrong. So I, to get back to your earlier question, I didn't feel scared uh, and 
I did feel violated in a certain sense. I, I felt that the sanctity of the classroom had turned inside out into some sort of psychological uh, psychodrama or some sort of like trauma workshop where we're all involved in like just reliving 200 or 500 years of historical trauma all in the moment without any end or any resolution other than a list of, you know, 80, 150 demands that they issued to the college. So what happened after the library protest? What was the next thing that happened? Well, on the tw- so on the 23rd, they protested Brett Weinstein, and then they had this struggle session at 4 o'clock on the fourth floor of the library building. And the protesters released a press release to, uh, I guess, and it got published in Afropunk, which is this website. And I've done this before. Like, they... They have this, uh, the protesters give you this story about what's going on, about all this police brutality and all this racism. And every single one of their points is a lie or a fabrication or or twisting of the truth. None of it's actually solid or or real or or honest. Um, But it, it plays well because it's right along with that Black Lives Matter narrative. Now, I don't mean to cast shade on Black Lives Matter. I'm just saying that they adopted the narrative of Black Lives Matter and they plugged in all the same situations without those situations actually being there. So that went out online and that and then those uh, the 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 stream the live streams started to circulate online and then more live streams on the second day of protest. And what happened on campus it's it's very ironic because it's a very small camp. Even at that time, it's a very peaceful, quiet place. Um, so there were weird incidents where the uh, after Brett Weinstein goes on Fox News, then the students form a community policing uh, armada. And they start roaming around with, like, these neon bat sticks trying to keep people safe, which amounts to beating up people who are writing in chalk on the quad, uh, we want more class and let's talk civilly. You know, like, those were paramount to violence, like, to, to ask for civility in this rubric. And I've heard teachers and faculty say this, too. To demand civility is another form of oppression. They use that to justify some sort of police action against those students who were doing that. Mm. So was there was there any actual violence that happened? Uh, there was a, there was a mild event, and I think the guy ended up suing the person who assaulted him. There's video that I've released. I think Mike Nina's used it in his uh, documentary of like a kind of a Blair Witchy uh, event where a group of newly armed gender specifying demand a mob meets with the uh, we want more class chalking armada and the student police people like assault one guy, throw him to the ground. I have pictures of his hand gets all uh, scratched up and he ends up running across campus to the dorms. And then he's uh, kind of locked in a room or he's like taken aside and then the room is surrounded that he's in. And the police go over there and try to dispel the whole thing. But the police start getting surrounded. And uh, I think... I think I do have the radio of this. The police are surrounded in the police car, and they're trying to extract that individual. 
who was assaulted, uh, and they just kind of get out of there as soon as possible because it's very unsafe. And actually, there is footage of uh, Evergreen students in 2008, I believe, kind of going to town on police vehicles and having a a riot at that point. So it's not unprecedented that Evergreen students would actually do some assaulting of police, but it didn't happen. It just almost happened at that point. But most of it... Most of it was just a, a feeling on campus, uh, which is hard to, to explain, but there was a very dark uh, feeling on the campus. And I remember, like, after the protests, like, going onto campus to do my work and being hardly able to breathe, like, having a very shortness of breath. And, and I think that that's captured in my first video on Evergreen. Um, it was just mm, that that, mm. that oppression was there. And there was no way to disagree with what was going on. There's no way to talk about it. And I think somebody online asked about if Brett Weinstein overdid uh, the uh, his story when he went public, if he... I can't remember the exact question. Did you see that? Well, I think the person meant that in a friendly way. They meant they wanted you to... You know, they wanted you to defend Brett against um, accusations. Let me see. Yeah. I know from the person who wrote it that that was their intention. Oh, yeah. Christoph um, asks, this incident made Brett Weinstein famous as a sort of free speech warrior. Does Ben have any sense that Brett's framing of the incident, sorry, Benjamin, have any sense that Brett's framing of the incident was distorted, giving those incentives at play for him? I'm not accusing Brett of this, but it seems to be implied by many of his detractors. Yeah. I don't think... I, I brought that up not to you know, defend the uh, accusation that, that Brett is a grifter or not. I don't think he is. But did he use this event to catapult himself into some sort of you know, public intellectual life? And I don't think he saw that that was the outcome. Uh, from what I've talked to him and from what I saw the effect of him speaking about uh, what happened at Evergreen, the most important thing was that Nobody could talk about what was happening on campus and everybody could talk about what was happening on campus on YouTube because they just saw the videos. But Brett violated this un I think he said this to me at one point. He violated this unwritten rule of never bringing our problems to the outside world. But at that point, there was no way to actually have a dialogue about it. And once Brett crossed that threshold and spoke to the world about what happened, then we could start having that conversation. Or at least the people who were in there felt the ability uh, to to recognize that this isn't the only part of the world, you know, that, that there's other people out there that can we, that we can talk to this about, and it, we're not just forced in this bubble and 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 behind this iron curtain of of just accepting this one narrative, which which was utterly oppressive. I, I've never felt that oppressed. So it wasn't like a specific fear of my of my own safety, but it was a very definite, palpable just oppression of thought of, of, I guess, spirit of of being able to, to to move about and to not feel like you're going to get attacked at any moment verbally. I, I, I never really scared of being physically attacked, but certainly verbally. So is there, is there more to this narrative that you'd like to add? So we, we had the library struggle session and then there was the, 
Was the next thing that happened the library protest where George Bridges wasn't allowed to pee? That was on the second day of protest, yeah. And okay. there was only two days of protest. And then there was a, uh, on the third day, they tried to protest this community police or this police community forum. Um, but the police didn't show up. So they ended up just talking about the police and how they just wanted to do community policing. And then about halfway through that meeting, they decide that one person is guilty of being a racist. And so they, they summarily like decide his fate for him and kick him out of the room because somebody, he sent somebody a, a, a look across the room that, that made them feel uncomfortable. So they, they, sh- they demanded community policing and then they showed everybody what they meant by community policing, which is just like, we feel that you are not safe for us, so you need to leave. Because of a look? Because of a look, and and somebody said he looked at me and then he mouthed words at me. Like his lips moved in my direction. And so that, that guy was kicked out, and he was, they demanded that he delete photos from his phone, and he said, I'm not going to do that. You can't tell me what to do with my property. And they demanded that they could do that. So it was really telling. There's another video that I did cutting that down. It's not as dramatic um, as the uh, shouting and yelling, but that that's what happened on the third day. And then on the fourth day, President Bridges, uh, he read their demands and he acquiesced to everything that he could legally acquiesce. I think to get insight, I'd like to go to the questions that people raised on Twitter and maybe we can take it from there because I think some of those questions got quite close to the heart of what I'm interested in. If that's okay with you, we'll just take those and see what you have to say and see where it goes. So one person asked, a person called Kavi is his handle, what, if anything, have the activists said that you have agreed with or even just been sympathetic to? I think that question was a rephrasing of a previous question of whether or not I agreed with the protesters or not. Um, That's a really good question because... It's very difficult for me to find anything that I'm sympathetic with with regards to what the protesters did other than the Native American demands where they demanded that they be allowed to have potlucks in the longhouse and not have to be forced to pay Aramark to uh, cater their events. Um, The Native Americans also wanted to be able to pick uh, plants on the land. And because of some sort of state law, they weren't allowed to, you know, pick uh, plants and fungus from the land. So those two demands I thought were very reasonable and, and rather wonderful and kind of speaks to the Native American spirit on the campus. Um, but going through the events and going through the demands and going through the behaviors, I find very little that I agree with. I, I guess, like, if they wanted something and I understood what they wanted, then I might be able to agree or disagree with it. But I never, I still don't have a really an understanding of what they actually wanted. So I, I, I haven't been able to be that sympathetic to them. Other than, you know, I'm sure that some of them got a lot of online hate. And I feel bad that they got a bunch of hate mail I, and abuse online. I really wish that hadn't have happened, but that was in response to the way that they were behaving. So it's like, uh, you know, I'm kind of sympathetic, but, you know, you give it, there's a give and a take to, you know, social momentum. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Helen also asked whether there were any 
If any of the activist demands and speaking points focus on economic or class issues, or if it was all about identity, and particularly racial identity, Helen says, although it seems that trans identity was also a major player in this ident- in this kind of identity jungle. I've been working uh, on a series of interviews with uh, trans people, uh, you know, trans men, trans women, detrans people, uh, psychologists, sexologists, researchers, uh, and uh, endocrinologists eventually. And I'm, I'm doing that partly in response to what I saw at Evergreen, which was that the trans identity was co-opted by the radical activists as another you know, buffer from criticism. And, and I think that it was pretty horrific that the trans, uh, you know, the, the, the fact of being trans, of, of suffering from gender dysphoria and going through steps to a right oneself uh, in their relationship to themselves and the world is, has been reduced into an identity and then used as a part of this war. And, and so you bring up the trans identity. I think that if you actually look at the people who were leading the protest who claim to be trans, like they, they have a very particular definition of what they mean by trans, which doesn't align up with uh, the trans people that I've been speaking to in, in my, my series and stuff like that. They, um, mm. But to get to Helen's question, there... There wasn't a lot of economic stuff other than they wanted free food and they wanted to be able to get food stamps and they weren't allowed to do that. Well, they, they thought that they weren't allowed to get food stamps because you have to work 20 hours a week to get food stamps. And the college, because of state regulations, only lets you work 19 hours. But the food stamps actually uh, raises that for if you have a student job, you can get uh uh, food stamps and only work 19 hours a week. So they were unaware that that exception was in place. But that was the only thing of an economic sort that I saw, other than they wanted more space in their equity center. Um, one one student protester stood up, and he goes off for about 15 minutes in the middle of the protest about the square footage of all these different diversity uh, lounges in Washington colleges. <laughs> And compares it to Evergreen, <laughs> and uh, you know, and which is really weird. Um, but I don't know if that's necessarily like an economic demand. They just want a segregated room. Um, and actually, I, I can say that they wanted a segregated room because right at the the day before the public protests, they protested the soon to be. Vice President of Equity and Inclusion, which is now called the Vice President of Inclusive Excellence because they keep on changing their language. Um, but they, they kind of they interrupted this uh, this lecture that she was giving um, and asked if she would allow for black only spaces or queer only spaces. Um, so th- that's explicitly what they want when they say a diversity center. They want a place where they can be away from white people, um, more or less. Um, and, and another thing that you might be able to say is somewhat ec- economic is that they wanted more black uh, or more uh, teachers of color and professors of color and staff of color. When if you actually look at the ratio of, uh, you know, color, the, 
the ethnic and racial ratio of the Evergreen, you know, State College and its faculty, staff, and admin. It's got a much higher rate of minorities than the surrounding area, than Washington, and than the United States as a whole. So they're doing really good, but the students demanded more, uh, you know, people of color in positions of power, which might be economic in in a way. They they want their people to be getting the money, um, in a way, but. Hmm. And are the students, so you say that a lot of the students were demanding food stamps? One, that are, was the, the, the one economic thing. that. that right, right. And what kind of economic background do most of those students come from who are at Evergreen? Well, Evergreen does service uh, because of its... Um, I don't know now. I just got. I just received a calculation of next year's enrollment, which is a much worse figure than this current year's enrollment, and they're going to be hiding mm. that for a while. But yeah, not surprising. You, you only. Somebody said at one point, the only people that end up at Evergreen are people that can't make it anywhere else, and it was kind of a self-depreciating kind of jab. And and I think that there are Heather Hying was. Uh, absolutely phenomenal professor and there's several other phenomenal uh, I almost said oppressors but I meant professors <laughs> what's the difference I mean come on it's definitely the same thing they do have the ability to grade you and judge you all the time I find that as a as a non-american I have to say I find it extraordinary that you're graded by your own professors that seems I, I mean not just at evergreen but Everywhere that seems uh, so unfair. We were graded double blind, you know. But anyway, that's a that's a U.S. sort of peculiarity um, that I think really poisons potentially poisons the relationship between students and faculty in so many different ways. Yeah, well, well, at, uh, at Evergreen you get a narrative evaluation, so the professor kind of does a write up on you, like a two page write up on your performance and and your strengths and weaknesses. Right, right. Which does have does does open you up to certain abuses. So somebody asked a question along these lines, and since we're talking about professors, this is my was my question too. Um, you said that George Bridges was not able to fire people, so he couldn't just fire everybody who was uh, who had paler skin. He couldn't take out a Pantone chant a chart and just say all professors whose skin is not at this level of brownness will have to go. And presumably there are laws to prevent that. So given that these professors couldn't be fired, what were they afraid of? Why was it that the professoriate wasn't supporting Brett? Why was it that they didn't, um, uh, that they didn't stand up against these student protesters? Um, and why didn't they take some kind of leadership stance on this? The videos that I've seen, the professors look exactly as you looked speaking into the camera. Not that I'm blaming you for this at all. Of course, your position was different, but they look scared and cowed. Is it, I mean, are they physically afraid of the students? Because, you know, there's a lot more students than there are of them. Are they, are they just afraid of they just want a quiet life and they're just afraid of kind of being bullied by their students? Or why were the professors unable to offer any kind of resistance? I'm not blaming them, let me be clear, because if I had been at Evergreen, I would have been quite afraid. You know, if there were 30 young male students ganging up on me, I that would scare me. 
And um, I would, you know, I would have panicked if I'd been in Brett's situation. Um, so I don't blame anybody at all for feeling fear, but I just want to unpick what was going on there. Um, why, why couldn't they, for example, just have a staff meeting and decide as a group that they were all going to stand up against this? Oh, they did have a meeting, and they all decided to stand up for it. Why? Because they, I mean, I can't believe that professors would actually think this was a reasonable way to behave, speak, things, things to demand, etc. They released a statement that exonerated and, and championed the student protesters and and excuse their behavior as, you know, like the, the tired old thing that they always said is they maybe we didn't like the way they said things, but what they said is what matters. And actually, if you look at what they said, it's 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 even worse because it doesn't make any sense mm. or it's all power yeah. or it's all lies. So so I think they weren't necessarily afraid of the students. They had the, the college had been captured by a certain way of thinking and that way of thinking policed every resistance of it. So any voice that would question or criticize was marginalized. There's a small group of faculty that would gang up on you and do everything they could to pillory you and call you all the names that have kind of lost a lot of value because now they're just everywhere. They call you a racist or a phobe or whatever. Um, if you didn't toe this line, if you didn't, even if you didn't approach this with the right amount of devotion, you would be looked down upon. And, and that was a very small minority of the, the faculty and the professoriate, but it had such a hold on the college. And you might be able to say that insofar as George Bridges came aboard and empowered those people, he gave them legitimacy um, not only to forward their agenda, but to continue to suppress any sort of criticism of that. And uh, there's some theories that that I, I think are unsubstantiatable, but um, that he did that. He empowered this, he used this racist uh, or this anti-racist uh, ideology in order to reconfigure the college from a professor-centered college into an administrative centered college. And, and that's what he's actually done. Just this past week, uh, within two days of each other, an email was sent out to faculty offering them to take leave without pay. And then the, a day later, or two days later, the vice president of the Office of Inclusive Excellence and Student Success releases an email about how she's expanding that branch of the college. So they're cutting down the faculty and expanding the administration for this equity and diversity thing. And, and I bet you, I don't want to say this, but I'm sure I know the racial composition of that particular uh, sector of the college because it's all about this sort of racial thing. So you, you actually, I've, I heard uh, some strong criticism that they, they tried to hire a man or they offered a man the job of vice president of equity. And he was a Latino man, but because he was a man, he wasn't good enough. And they, they made fun of him, not in front of his face, but the students were like, what the hell are you thinking? Yeah, no, I'm not sighing at you. I'm just like sighing generally at the universe. Um... <laughs> the universal sighs. 
The other thing that several people have brought up, and um, which I think would be really interesting to ask you about, I gather that you had a very religious upbringing. Oh, yeah, that that aspect of things. And, you know, I knew it. Sorry, <laughs> maybe that's a very personal thing to say. But I knew it. I just had this sense. <laughs> and um, Does that uh, mean that you... You feel like I'm holy or you feel unholy in my presence? Where does that feeling come from? <laughs> well, you know, I always feel unholy. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm always, the, I'm always the only non-atheist in any kind of group of people who I like. And, you know, although I'm, I'm not an atheist, I really, I really only like atheists. <laughs> um, I, only get, I only get on with people who are very rational. But I, there's a certain sort of, I don't know what it is, but I just have this sense. I can, I, I have like a sixth sense for the Christian thing. Tell me about your upbringing. And a lot of people have asked whether you recognized similarities between the religious upbringing you had and what was happening in Evergreen. So to what extent is this could this be seen as a kind of quasi-religious phenomenon? Or what similarities or differences might there be? I know when you were talking to Mike Niner, you said it's not like a religion because the music is not as good as in, as in, for example, Christianity. We don't really have any much music in Zoroastrianism, but um, the the kind of the like the music and the icons and the and the the stories and the there's no holy text so many things are many of the kind of cultural aspects are missing but um and there's no is there a priesthood i guess it's the i mean there's a kind of caste system but is there a, is there an actual priesthood is there an authority is there a sort of pope is robin d'angelo sort of equivalent to a kind of pope uh, yeah, so, whoever can give you the justification for your behavior or justify this ideology would be, I guess, you know, ipso a, a priest of some sort. But um. so um, maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about your upbringing, and then answer or don't answer some of those questions. Well, I would have to tailor my sharing of my, you know, the. the uh, that aspect of my life just to the external part because that which is the part of me that would be spiritual or religious is not something that necessarily is uh, communicable in the first place and you know doubly communicable in this format like it could be expressed through various sorts of artistic or metaphorical means but um not directly but i did the first few years of my life I was exposed. My parents were involved in, you know, like this uh, kind of mid-70s California Christian cult. And there was a lot of them back then. The, it seems like the the boomer generation, uh, a lot of them went into that, uh, you know, that, that hippy-dippy mode. And a lot of them went into this kind of looking for a new spirituality or looking for, uh, there's a biblical term, uh, looking for a new wineskin for the wine. And a lot of... There was a lot of cults uh, in the 70s and the 80s that popped up, especially on the West Coast. What was it called? Uh, it doesn't really matter. It was a very small one. I, I, it's, it was just a very small kind of, and 
reinterpretation of the Bible around a certain stressing of certain aspects of the Bible. And actually, I could tell this story uh, or this aspect of it because it does line up to what I saw at Evergreen. Um, for whatever reason, the person who was the leader of the cult that uh, you know I was kind of involved when up till the age of five, right? So I wasn't really involved in it, but I was exposed to it, and I saw its after effect uh, upon my parents. Uh, the, the leader of that, very authoritarian, very, very dictatorial, he decided to go down this path of exorcism, of exercising the spirits. And there was just more and more as time went on from the stories that I heard, there was more and more of these kind of exorcisms going on where there were laying of, on of hands and somebody, you know, there was, a, there was a, a certain number of specifically women in the congregation who had the ability to see if somebody had a bad spirit on them or not. And, and then that, that woman would say, you know, you have a bad spirit on you and then you'd get taken into a room and they'd lay hands upon you and, and do this ritual to get the bad spirit out. Um, and I wasn't cognizant of this, so this is just me repeating stories, but I do have a very definite sense of that magnification of evil, that magnification of what is bad, and we're going to exercise the bad, and we're going to focus more and more on the bad, and it forms a sort of spiral where the people who are doing that, they kind of lose their light, and they lose their happiness, they lose their connection to the good, because it, the bad kind of starts to consume them. And, and I did feel, I think I did feel something very similar at Evergreen in those meetings that I spoke about yesterday or earlier in this episode about just being in this room and, and watching these people and this very devout sorts of confessionals just talking about the demon of white supremacy and, you know, the, the powers and principalities of whiteness and how they control everything and how we need to somehow get them out because we are possessed too. Um, and just that, that, uh, that worshiping of sin, of the fallen state, right, metaphorically or literally. Um, and and that, that, that being involved in that uh, cult or like that, that kind of set a framework for my entire life in, in a certain way of being very distrusting of central authority, being very wary of authority in and of itself. Um, and, and, you know, after we left that cult, we were always going to church. And so I, and we moved around a lot. So I was just exposed to one pastor after another pastor, after another pastor, after another pastor, and became very, uh, uh adept at spotting b bullshit from the pulpit. Um, and, and not just bullshit, but being adept at seeing when somebody is actually giving a gift to the congregation that, that would be useful for their lives or enlightening in some sense, either emotionally or, or mentally, just something that would lift people up and get them through what, wherever they were at that week. Yeah, and so at some point in my adult life, I'm like, the, the one thing that I really need to get across to people is to tell the story of how cults happen and how they form and what it's like to get involved in them. Um, so that kind of lined up when the Evergreen thing kind of went totally nuclear. And then I started working on this project. The, there was something in the back of me. It's like, okay, I'm finally doing that thing that I wanted to do of exposing what it's like to get swept up into an ideology that ends up dehumanizing you and gets you into trouble in a variety of ways. So it's the, it's the, it's the emphasis, it's the kind of obsession with driving out the demon is where you see the main connection. I mean, I was thinking about it in terms of 
talking about the language things, how so much of it seems to me like recitation of language for its own sake. There seems to be this belief that language has magical powers. And this is not to say that language is not powerful, of course. Words can be hurtful or liberating or inspiring or whatever else. But, um, you know, the fact that, for example, as Helen says, they concentrate so little on economic issues. And it's so much about wanting people to make the correct statement, to say or not say or sign their names to the right just collection of words. And there's something very creed-like about that. And this kind of recitation as a, as, as a, is a very, that's a very religious thing. You know, in Zoroastrianism, we, when we pray, we recite words in the Vestan. And, um, I do know what they mean because I, you know, I have read, I've, I've read the, um, the relevant scriptures in translation. I've read the, our prayer book thing in translation, but from day to day, I'm not saying it in English and I don't remember exactly what all of the bits are, but it's just a, it's, it's a prayer and you recite it and you recite it in a dead language that nobody speaks anymore. And you'd still need to get all your syllables correct. And there seems to me to be a uh, a parallel here, which there really shouldn't be in secular life. There's something sort of magical about this is also why people are so fixated on pronouns. I went to, um, when I was teaching um, dance, I taught a class in Boston, which was this group of queer dancers, quote unquote. I think, I can't remember how exactly what exactly the name was, but I, queer was in the name. And I was planning what the class was going to be. And as someone told me, they, someone from within the group told me, the most important thing is that you get everyone's pronouns right. And this person actually terrified me because he, she, they, whatever it said, um, if you get anybody's pronoun wrong. It won't matter what you taught, people will hate you. So I entered the class feeling rather afraid. And in fact, it didn't even arise because when you speak to people, you don't use third person pronouns, which seems like an obvious thing, but seems to be something that is completely forgotten in the trans community. So, you know, I never had to say he, she anyway, because I was, the student was right there. So I could I was speaking directly to them and saying you, and that, thank God, in English, you is not a gendered pronoun. Thank God, that's our one, like, safety thing yet. (laughs) Don't give them ideas. But this sort of, yeah, this idea that I might slip up in a pronoun and that that would be worse than anything I could teach or not teach. You know, there's this real privileging of language over everything else. And I think that that is, that's something we, we see in, in all kinds of areas, both in this neglect of economics and also in uh, fat studies, quote unquote, where people feel that some people who are really morbidly obese or are supporting morbid obesity say that the problem with being obese is the language that people use about you the things that they will say about you and the way that they will describe you. And if people would just use the right language, if they would just say the right things, everything would be fine. 
So it's a complete denial of reality. Well, is it a denial or do they just not have the ability to think beyond that? Do they feel, is it not just an expression of impotence that you can't actually change anything, but you mm -hmm. can demand people conform to this language? Because if they don't conform to that language, then they're being outright disrespectful because how hard could it possibly be to just change your language? And if you're not willing to do that, like what else are you not willing to do? Right. So it's, it's, it might be an expression of impotence and an expression of control. Yeah, maybe. Um, I mean, I, that is, that's what John McWhorter always says about Ta-Nehisi Coates, that it's a theology of despair, that Coates's writing is it never suggests, uh, you know, America is a racist society and we can help it become less racist by X or Y, or there's been some progress on this. No, there's never been any progress. There's not, there's no way of fixing this. It's like inbuilt, it's inbred. And this is where this whiteness comes in. It's like inscribed in your DNA. And so there is no room for improvement. There's nothing you can actually do to improve it. So you can only kind of tinker around with language. Maybe that is part of the what's going on here. I, earlier I spoke about that moment when I was on camera and, and I was filming my first professor saying, uh, you know, that, that Evergreen is implicated in you know, st structures of oppression and we need to rethink our ways that we teach white science and white art and white history and the way that those knowledges are, are are constructed. And one of the things that deeply offended me about that statement, um, and, and I'm trying, I was thinking about this last night after we spoke, because I know that this can come off in the wrong way. But I had spent, you know, I, I became an adult when I was 18 or whatever. And, you know, uh, about 16 years later, or 12 years later, however long that was, I ended up going to college then at 36. And between 18 and 36, I had you know, written about uh, 2.5 million words of just like fiction and just like pursuing fiction and pursuing fiction and reading and writing and reading and writing and, and looking at all the heritage that I have inherited and trying to push that one step further, trying to get it to do something that it hasn't done yet, like really trying to push the boundaries of that, that project, that, that cultural project. And that's why I went to college. I went to college to, to hone my craft and then to take the, hone my own mastery of the craft and then see if I had what it takes to push the mastery of the craft itself one step further, right? And, and whether or not I failed at that or not, I don't need to worry about that because I'll be dead before anybody can actually make that judgment. But my whole pursuit in life up until I went to college was to try to take Western culture or literature itself, I never thought of it as Western literature because I, I would read all sorts of literature and try to take literature itself. And then to see my professor betray that, that pursuit of excellence, to betray that we are going to try to make the best thing possible and, and to knock all that down because somehow in erecting this pyramid, not everybody can get to the top of the pyramid or whatever it is. It, it was a total cop-out to me. Instead of pursuing the excellent, you, you pursue this other thing because maybe you don't think that you can get up there. Maybe you want everybody to exist at that level, at that high-functioning level. I, I don't know how to communicate that, but, but for some reason, our education systems no longer push 
us towards maximizing our capacities and our capabilities, right? And and we don't all have to be great at everything, but there's got to be something that every one of us can really pursue passionately. And all of that stuff is denigrated and thrown under the bus by this equity of outcomes focus, by this focus on oppression, by this focus on the injustices of the world. And furthermore, like you were saying, because it's based on pretty shoddy thinking, this postmodernism and all this weird kind of theories mixed up in it that is really confusing and really abstract ends up making people feel extremely impotent and then not get out of that at all because they're not actually creating a mastery of anything other than controlling other people in the moment and and shaming other people in the moment or going out there and feeling incised about, you know, who's in charge of the federal government or outraged on social media. Yeah, there seems to be this sort of inchoate emotion bubbling around in them that just is not, is sort of untethered. And I, I agree with you. I like the, the Native American students' demands. I'm not sure about picking plants. I would need to know if those were endangered species or, or not. But um, For their ancestral medicines that only grow in that area. Uh-huh, right. I'm a little skeptical of ancestral medicines, but I certainly like the potluck idea. You know, you're, you're actually nailing your colors to the mast for something specific. You have actual specific goals. And I just want to, you know, my background is I'm mixed race and and ethnically I'm Indian Parsi. And I find this kind of whole idea that there is white science and white literature so incredibly offensive, I cannot tell you. It's exactly the same nonsense that you hear from the alt-right and the far right. This idea that somehow a particular work of literature or art or a scientific invention or discovery or a a piece of architecture or whatever it might be belongs to you or doesn't belong to you by virtue of the fact that you have a similar skin tone. So you're taking credit for something that has nothing to do with you. And you are suggesting that what made them able what made them able to create that, say, work of literature was some allele that codes for lighter skin. I mean, how ridiculous is that? I feel it's, you know, really works of genius belong to everybody. That's what a work of genius does. It it makes it feel like this product belongs to you or touches you on such a deep level that it you own it. Right, right. Like, how do we get to the positive? How do we get to unification? And... You know, I don't know how to do it. Maybe I'm a rosy-eyed, starry-bottomed brother of the you know romantic nature, but I, I I try to tell this. And if you want to teach virtue, if you want to teach humility, don't teach shame. I try to tell the professors and and the head of the you know diversity and implicit bias training that we had to do. If you want to teach us to be respectful, don't teach us how full of disrespect the world is. Like, that is the exact opposite. And plus, you're using horrible language to do something that's already been set down by religions for time immemorial. Charity, love, you know, like all these great concepts are already at your disposal, but they're repackaged, and they're repackaged because they're not the same thing. It's not equality. They can't call it equality. They don't want equality. They want equity, right? They want you to give right. something they, up. They want a, a reversal. They want not a kind of inclusion of more people, but an exclusion of certain people. They want a turning of the tables, a revenge. 
And in the case, when when you look at what the purpose of school is, it completely falls apart because there's no way that you can take mastery from somebody else and get ahead, right? Like it, the, equity doesn't work in a educational environment. You can't take knowledge away from somebody and give it to somebody else. Everybody has to pursue knowledge on their own terms and work their butt off to own the knowledge themselves. And, and to, to try to mess around with that without just saying, we're going to demand really high expectations for everybody that's the least racist thing that we can do is not to give you a leg up if your skin color is this and you got a bad grade, which is what ever I have documents. Evergreen tried to change the grades of people with dark skin uh, for high science for uh, upper division science credit because of this equity thing. But, you know, if that person becomes a vet, they're going to be a shitty vet. Right. On paper, you can give them an A, but in reality, they're still going to be failing because they didn't actually own that knowledge to begin with. And the easy thing to do is to just suppress voices and to shuffle grades around. The hard thing to do is to inspire people to to get a leg up on themselves because they have to want it themselves. And you cannot stand in the way between a, a soul and that which the soul needs to pursue. You know, you, you might be able if you're really gifted, you might be able to unlock that. But I think it's just it's lazy teaching. This whole equity thing is just an excuse to be a, a really bad, negligent teacher and then get a lot of brownie points on your emotional, you know, report card because you had a bunch of struggle sessions at the end of the year and a bunch of people cried on your shoulder. I don't know. You asked me if I'm sympathetic at all to the protesters, and I, I am sympathetic to the pain that people experience. I, I am sympathetic to people who experience racism and homophobia and, and get crapped on for something that they have no control over. I really, I really want to help those people out. And I want to be like somebody who gives things to people who need things. But I think that the whole way that Evergreen went about it and then the way that the students went about it was more degrading to their cause than anything else it could have been. It really sold people short um, by making them out to be weak and oppressive at the same time. I want to come back to a couple of the questions. I think you have answered a lot of them just in the course of speaking now, but there are a couple of things that people brought up which I which I would like to hear about. One is that several people asked, was there any student opposition to the students who were protesting? Well, you talked about the the small group of you who signed this counter, this letter in support of Brett, um, and you talked about people who are chalking, we want more class. So clearly there was some, there was some pushback, right, among students. Yeah, well, it, the protest happened, I guess, two or three weeks before the end of the quarter and at the end mm-hmm. of the year, too. So most people were just focusing on getting things done. It wasn't long enough. Well, one, during the protest, there's no way to counter that protest while it was happening. There was too many and there were too vehement. So you're just like, well, whatever. Okay, you guys do your thing. Like there's there's nothing really to counter protest. You guys are just acting like idiots. Right. And you're doing it all together. So like we can't stop you. You know, like that chant is really catchy. Hey, hey, ho, ho, you know, or whatever. Um but in the aftermath, yeah, I was involved with a group of people who wrote about that. And I, I did my own sort of protesting by, you know, doing this YouTube thing and kind of dragging all this thing into light and kind of uh, 
you know, using a little bit of humor and other tools at my disposal to kind of take the piss out of the people. And in my YouTube stuff, I, I try to stay away from students, except for specific students who made themselves public after the fact and went on like tours of oppression or whatever, you know. Um, I focused on the faculty, I focused on the administration because that is where things would change. And that's, that's the stuff that I had a problem with. So yeah, there was students that were against it. But what do you do? You just need to get through with your school year and then go back home. Um, and then by and then afterwards they kind of won the moral battle so there was no way to go against them cuz cuz after it went public they got so much hate that then they were proved they proved themselves to be oppressed so it's like you can't argue with them at all you know yes, like oh look at how oppressed you are now all that hate mail you got there is this odd sort of i sometimes feel like i'm in one of those um track episodes which are always my least favorite episode where there's a time paradox where, you know, you can't, the thing that you, you have to go back and not do the thing that you did in the past in order to be able to do it in the past so that the future will, I, I mean, I can't even, um, you know what I mean? And there seems to be this odd sort of um, tendency for people not to understand um, causal sequences. So they say, for example, well, we need to blame Brett Weinstein for the for what happened, because after it happened, Brett went on Fox News. And I'm like, you don't understand before, after time, it's got an arrow, it goes in one direction. You know, I would love, I would love it if it were reversible, but unfortunately not. Um, I don't, I don't even understand that people are angry about people's responses but the responses were caused by the behavior. I mean, of course. Um, and, and no, 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 I no. Feel... <laughs> but, but according to them, their behavior was caused by the response. The, the response is white privilege. It became, it came before, and it became, it came after. So it just, it's just brought to light. It's a never-ending cycle of samsara, right? And that they're in, <sighs> enmeshed in. And, and I, I have to say this: the, the President Bridges. Uh, initiated an independent review committee uh, to analyze what happened during the protest and how the administration responded to it. And President Bridges staffed it with people he'd known for upwards 20 years, people that he'd worked with and known and who were a part of the Evergreen State College, who were a part of the equity and inclusion and diversity push. And they came out with a report that excused the protesters, blamed the actions of the protesters on what happened in Charlottesville two months later, and then said that George Bridges did everything wrong. And then actually it was Brett Weinstein's fault that the college underwent the 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 problem that it went through. Um, so it did exactly what you're saying right now. It was all the fault of everything external to the college, and everything internal was A-OK. And actually, I just had a professor kind of come after me on social media and then write me this really long uh, email saying how wrong I was and that the this independent report proved that the administration's doing great when it was it's a total fallacious report. Um, but I'm sorry to interrupt you. What what can we do to make things better? What's the best way to respond? What's the most effective way to respond to this? So there are obviously some very counterproductive ways. I was thinking about the Naimalo thing, um, you know, when you kind of misunderstood or maybe didn't misunderstand, but we're trying to clarify what I said about Naimalo, 
for example, that, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with being an obese woman with a tiny dog. My sister is an obese lady with three tiny dogs, Jack Russell Terriers, you know, in fact. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. You know, maybe losing weight for health would be good if it's possible, but there's no ethical, there's nothing ethically wrong with that whatsoever. And I am in favor of tiny dogs. There's obviously a an unhelpful response, which is just taking the piss out of people and attacking them again on the basis of things that they can't really help and which are quite ethically neutral anyway, like look at their pink hair or whatever it might be. So there's a trolling response, there's a kind of Ben Shapiro-esque response for which I have zero, zero respect. But what is the, what is the helpful response for the rest of us? And so that's, I have two questions, actually. That's the first of them. I'll stop there and let you answer that. And then I'll, I'll ask the second question. I think that, I think that the response needs to be multivariate, right? There needs to be a, a, an array of responses. I think that trolling does have a place. Uh, it has a very specific place. It cannot dominate the conversation, even close to getting... Mm. To dominate the conversation, but humor and taking the piss out of things—it has a place. Of course, humor is subjective. Everybody should be able to say everything. I am a free speech extremist, but you know that's that's not humor. But yes, a humorous response is helpful. Sorry, go ahead. Well, yeah, but but that that can't be the end. Like that can mm-hmm. have like there's a there's a vanguard of response to social justice as the capital S capital J, and that started with YouTube videos taking the piss out of social justice extremism. And they, they, in doing that, they actually covered a lot of ground and started to, to show how it's everywhere. And it didn't catch up to us until I think uh, probably in 2015 with the, uh, the Yale Christakis event. I think that showed how far social justice, capital S, capital J, had infiltrated the mindset of that generation and then how the, it had infiltrated the administration. Then we have what's happening with the New York Times with uh, Sarah Young getting in charge of like or being on that board, you know, somebody who's very radical social justice, kill all men kind of person. Uh, but then is in a position of power now. So this stuff is everywhere. And I think that the, the anti-SJW stuff had, had, a, had a leg up on us. The, the Gamergate people, if I don't want to trigger too many people, but insofar as it wasn't a trolling operation, but a way of undercovering how a social justice ideology had infiltrated one aspect of media, they brought a lot to light. And, and they've been on the vanguard of the way that PayPal, Patreon, YouTube, Google, and Twitter have been acting with various groups, right? So now that, that Twitter is banning more and more people involved in the transgender discussion, right? Now those gamer gators don't seem like just a bunch of trolls. They were actually saying that this pattern behavior is replicable. So I'm just saying that, that this stuff has been... In, put in place for for decades now. It didn't get here overnight. It's entrenched into the administration, and it's entrenched within the minds of the of uh, the young people who are acting it out. And it's very deeply entrenched in both. So the way that that we solve it, one, reasonable people need to start standing up and 
calling bullshit on it and doing it in a variety of ways, having discussions, holding their ground, standing up, speaking out, um, especially the academy. The academy is, is every college in America now has this diversity, equity, inclusive, excellence, whatever it's called, department. And those departments are authoritarian and they're tyrannical and they start to control language. They start to police behavior in ways that I don't think behavior should be policed. And and people need to take notice of that. And at the same time, react smartly because this whole IDW thing, um, you know, it has some positives and it kind of has some negatives to it, the, the intellectual dark web. Because it's a group of actual people, those people have faults to them and they have, uh, they have good points and bad points to them. But they were trying to show something and because they were named and became a clan, that can have the, uh, the negative effect of people thinking that this issue is overblown, this campus free speech issue is overblown because these people are a bunch of, you know, curmudgeons and stuff. But they're actually, they came about because there's a problem. And and people need to recognize that that problem goes all the way down into how we discourse with each other on social media and the ways in which we engage with each other with depth, with nuance, with uh, forgiveness, with humor um, on a one-to-one basis and, and re- reset our networks and reset our neurons of the intellect, of, of the, of the, the internet to, to not just be all reaction and stuff. Cause that all feeds into it too. It's an impossible response, so I just kind of gave you a bunch of word salad. Hopefully it was more of a Caesar than a Waldorf. Well, you actually answered my second question as well, which is why why should people who are not academics care about this? I mean, I have so many hostile responses on Twitter when I write about this with people saying, oh, this is a non-issue. Why do you give a shit? And at least I can answer, well, you know, I spent half my life as an academic, so... I I think that, and I think that education is extremely important, um, and I think the university is extremely important. And so, of course, I'm concerned with what is happening there. But let's say that you really don't care about universities. What is the impact on wider society? I mean, you already sort of half answered this question, but I don't know if you have some more that you'd like to, to add. This this ideology has captured very big companies, Google, Twitter, Facebook. Silicon Valley is overrun by this stuff and is making a lot of de- decisions to actually filter our news to boost up this stuff or, or to, to end softly, right? Um, the, everybody's playing this propaganda game um, and everybody who's involved in media is partaking in propaganda, Right. And, and we need to be more wise with being able to tell not just if this source is correct, but is the source assembling all this stuff in a way that is constructive or destructive in the long term. Psychology is overrun by that. The school system is overrun K through K through whatever. It's not just the academy. It's it's the education system K through uh, whatever what senior in high school. Um K, K, you mean kindergarten. So it's preschool up to the end of school. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, at least in Washington. Washington's pretty much, uh, Washington education system is in a really bad way, and we won't see the results of that for a little bit longer, but it's being implemented. Uh, the kids are being indoctrinated into this kind of stuff. And and I do, I understand that I sound like a curmudgeon. I understand that I sound like a conspiracy theorist, and that's why I've been taking what I learned from Evergreen and studying this and trying to see if it does, if this critique against radical social justice-ism holds water outside of just the academy. And I think it does hold water in the, in the community of the clash between uh, gender-critical feminists, uh, rational trans people, and then the uh, radical uh, trans rights activists. There's, uh, there's a lot of kind of power struggle going on in that sector, and there's a lot of social justice stuff that's being used to cut people out of the conversation and control the flow of information that is very, very similar to what happened at Evergreen. So I'm trying to develop tools to... To combat this, and I think the main tool is having long-form discussion, human-human discourse, uh, where where people can make mistakes and where we can grow and learn together, like that. That which is like the core of education, right? This is the core of the Socratic mm. method. Mm. We're going to sit here and we're going to waste eight hours just talking about things, not try to get a leg up on each other, but try to try to open up discourse so we have more legs to, to walk around with or more steps to take. Right. It's the it's the kind of it's this group level thing, this idea of sort of group a, a struggle between groups and your group I- identity being all powerful and all uh, being the, the main kind of explanatory level. I mean this is why Jordan Peterson I think erroneously describes it as neo Marxism because Marxism is also about struggles between groups, and that's what they have in common, power struggles between groups. But it's this comes back to the podcast that I just did. By the time this comes out, it will have been a few weeks ago with Nicholas Christakis, um, that um, the the two levels that can really help us are the level of the individual, um, being able to see the actual person in front of you, so removing those those kinds of filters, um, not seeing not seeing the category. This is uh, cisgender, heterosexual, white American man, or whatever it might be, um, but seeing the actual Benjamin you um, in in all your complexity and then also the the big overarching level which is humanity understanding it in terms of shared humanity those are the two explanatory levels or ways of seeing things where there is real possibility for understanding compassion that that's that's what i feel when you when it's broken down into groups, it becomes, I mean, it can be useful to do group statistical analyses. If you are a statistician, if you are a sociologist, if you want to take a look at which groups are overrepresented in which ways, all of that is great, but it 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 makes sense only within those kinds of academic disciplines and maybe in the sense of policy. If you look and you see that your policies are not are not benefiting the people who you want to benefit. 
then you need to do some statistical analysis to see what's going on. Um, but it doesn't, it, it should be so, it should be kept out of one-on-one -on -one relationships as far as is possible. And this social justice movement is an attempt to bring that lens into every one-on-one -on -one relationship. Um, and I've become, you know, I used to, people who talk about whiteness, for example, who talk about kind of white fragility and white privilege. And yeah, it's become, it's no longer racism that's the problem. It's whiteness. It's like the actual skin tint is being white. And I used to think that this was a sort of metaphor shorthand and that wasn't, they weren't actually talking about people with an actual skin color. They weren't actually being prejudiced against people of, of a specific skin color. And obviously many, many of the people who say this kind of stuff, who use this language are themselves quote unquote white. I think the whole terminology of white, brown, black is just, it's a, um, it's a kind of level of lack of detail, which is just completely, it's, I mean, I don't think the concept of whiteness makes any sense, even on a racial statistical um, population-based level. But even then, you know, I've ceased to, sorry, uh, please interrupt. No, I was just going to, I was just going to build on what you're saying and say that what we need to do is that is to recognize that even though we're participating in tremendous amounts of non-face-to-face -face conversation via the internet, uh, where even on Facebook, like there's a face there, uh, but we really quickly forget that we're talking to another human being. Like, like when we're using these modes of communication, when we're speaking into the dark mode void, we're still speaking to other embodied entities, uh, humans. And, and th there's a leg up with the social justice stuff when they say, you know, that stuff is offensive to this group of people. So there is, there is a negotiation to enter into when we are speaking with all these people from all these uh, different historical lineages and all this different baggage. We're not going to get rid of the baggage, but we can return to injecting and centering or, or holding on to the humanity of the other while we're using these, uh, these mechanisms of communication. I think that, that the individual is abstracted. And we, we, I think one of the things that we're going through, and we're not going to be able to reverse this, is that we are uploading our life into this place of light and sound. We are taking the body and we're now trying to, to kind of transcend the body through the internet. And we need to understand that, that in this uploading, we need to upload the, the whole human being and be aware that, that we, this is a tool and it's really easy for this tool to become our master in a way. And the way to return it to being a tool is to use it to speak from one human being to the other and, and center the individual. Huh, I don't know what to add to that. Is there something that you have been you want that you wish I'd asked or that you want to say or that you need to add? Um, I hope there's something <laughs> that we can to provide a note we can end on. I always give my guests the last word, so um yeah, I was I was like the uh, the ellipsis. I end with the ellipsis um, rather than the bang, I guess. Um, or a clever joke. Yeah, I just 
my project on the internet is to try to, you know, be successful in a very particular way and, and not successful in a high numbers uh, way. I don't think it's possible for me to be a high numbers kind of guy. I don't even really want that. But I do want to be successful in bringing humanity into the virtual landscape. And the way that I've been doing that is through discussions just like we had today, these interviews with various topics where I'll just spend a couple years or a few months on this one topic. Like I've been doing trans, uh, feminist, uh, gender sexuality stuff recently, and I'll go on to other things like that. And I, I spent about a year and a half, well, I guess it's almost two years now, on the evergreen thing, I, slow and steady and, and uh, provide enough information for people of all different various kind of positions to actually actually hear somebody from another position, um, not distilled into this argumentative debate-like sphere. Um, and and I, I hope that we can train our attention, and I, we won't be able to do this, but to train our attention on, on the niche stuff, on the weird kind of idiosyncratic stuff. And I say that it's going to be impossible because our, our attention, our collective attention, will always converge upon crisis, right? If a Charlottesville happens, everybody's attention is going to converge upon that crisis. But that doesn't mean it, it gives the false impression that the world is in crisis. And it's not. It's just that we, our attention rarely converges on something that's not crisis, right? Like a cat photo, I guess, is the closest thing to a non-crisis convergence of attention. So if we can all kind of take part in being little uh, nudgers of the swarm towards focusing on something that isn't always in a crisis mode, I think that'll do a lot to kind of relieve a lot of the pressure, a lot of the pretend pressure, I might add, that we experience when we're interacting through the mediums of the internet. Mm, that's a good idea. That's your word. Benjamin, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Mm -hmm. And it has been an, a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor yours truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus. By becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.